The text is taken from Job 2, the verses 9 and 10, at least the first part of 10. So let's read that once again. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? After the sermon, we will sing together hymn 55, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3, Who Trusts in God a Strong Abode. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. In chapter 1, we read that the Lord God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job. And Satan did exactly that. He took all the possessions that Job had, his earthly possessions, including his whole family. Satan wanted Job to curse God because of this. But that didn't happen. Job did not blame God, nor did he curse him. He held on to his confession that everything he owns actually belongs to God in the first place. It is the Lord God who gave him everything. It was never his to start off with. And so, in Job's way of thinking, God had every right to take it all away. The Lord had given, and the Lord had also taken away. Satan lost the first round. Job did not curse God. Satan, of course, was not satisfied. He never is. He never gives up. He didn't want to admit defeat. And so he tries once again. And that's what we read about in chapter 2. Satan says, take away his health and touch his flesh and bones, and then he will surely curse you to your face. This is the last demand that Satan can make. It's his last kick at the can. There's nothing left to take. If that fails, then he has lost. Actually, there is one other thing. He could have asked the Lord God to take the life of Job's wife. However, Satan doesn't do that. He does not do that, no doubt, because he had a certain purpose in mind. And what is that purpose? Well, that answer is clear enough from the text. Satan wants to use Job's wife as an instrument in his hand to make Job curse God. He wants to use her as a weapon. It's his last weapon. Summarize the text as follows. Satan uses Job's wife to tempt him. And then we will look at three things. First of all, Job's affliction. Secondly, his temptation. And then finally, his answer to all this. It's hard to imagine the kinds of afflictions that Job had to suffer. The fact that he lost all his possessions and all of his children was bad enough. But now, his very health is also affected. 
We do not know exactly what dreaded disease Satan afflicted Job with. Some speculate that it was some kind of leprosy. Others say that it was smallpox. And again, others said that it was elephantiasis. Whatever it was, we do have a cryptic description of the symptoms. As we know from chapter 2, verse 7, he was afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. These sores were very itchy and also full of pus, so that he had to scrape himself with the nearest object available to him, namely a piece of broken pottery, in order to be able to get some relief. In chapter 7, verse 5, we are told that his body is clothed with worms and scabs. Elsewhere, we are told that he also lost his desire to eat, that he was in constant pain, and that he lost much of his strength. Chapter 9, verse 18 tells us that he had difficulty with breathing. And further on, we are told that he had dark rings under his eyes, that his breath stank, that his skin became black, and that it was peeling from his body. He also suffered fevers and chills. This disease also severely disfigured him, well, you can imagine. And his friends who had known him for a long time no longer were able to recognize him. Not a pretty picture. Can you imagine being afflicted in such a horrible way? It's no wonder that we read in chapter 3, verse 24, that he also suffered from depression. For he says there, for sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. Job was not able to go to a hospital. And that is something you and I would be able to do. When we become seriously ill, we have the choice to be put in antiseptic surroundings under the care of doctors and nurses and nurses' aides and other medical personnel. And there we can receive all kinds of medicine and relief from our pain and retain our dignity as much as possible. In the hospital, they give you clean sheets. They give you food and drink and whatever else you need. And your friends and your family can come and visit you there and offer you comfort and sympathy. None of these things were available to Job. He could not enjoy anything close to those kinds of surroundings and care. We read instead that Job sat among the ashes. The Septuagint, which is an old Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, elaborates on this verse by stating that in antiquity, the ashes referred to a pile of dung ashes by the garbage dump outside of the city where the refuse would be burned. And that's also where other outcasts and beggars would go. They would rummage there amongst the garbage to find something to eat. That is where Job ends up. 
The city's leading citizen is now living in abject poverty and shame. He lives there in the garbage dump by the ash heap where dogs fight over something to eat and where the city's dung is brought and burned. Job now lives amongst filth and stench along with the other rejects of society. How humiliating for Job. He who had sat at a city gate as a local judge, as we know from chapter 29 for 7, was now outside of the city with the beggars, scraping his itching, running sores with a broken piece of pottery. It is during those miserable circumstances that we are introduced to Job's wife. Second point. This is the first time that we hear of her. And the introduction is not very flattering, is it? The first thing that comes out of her mouth is not something anyone would like to be remembered for. For she tells her husband to curse God and to die. What an awful thing to say in the midst of those circumstances. What a thing to tell him at a time like this. She certainly does not come across as a sympathetic, loving, and God-fearing life, does she? For that reason, many commentators throughout the ages have painted only a very negative picture of Job's wife. They picture her as an ally of the devil, as an instrument in Satan's hands, and as the devil's best scourge. That's understandable. For she urged Job to do that which Satan exactly wanted Job to do. She wanted her husband to curse God. And that is exactly what it was all about. In Satan's way of thinking, Job only served God because of the things that he had given him, because God had been so good to him. It didn't cost him anything to serve God. God had given him riches and a good name. He had given him a wonderful family. He gave him everything his heart could possibly desire. Humanly speaking, there was nothing lacking in his life. It is no wonder that Job served God as zealously as he did. But, says Satan, touch not only his earthly possessions, but also his health, and then he will curse God. And now it appears that it's exactly what Job's wife wants him to do. But is Job's wife really as evil as it would appear? For what would you do? How would you feel under those circumstances? In the first place, let us remember that Job's wife went through the same kind of turmoil he had just gone through. Not only had he lost everything, so had she. Not only were all his children killed, so were hers. To top it all off, she sees the husband whom she loves suffer like no one she had ever seen suffer before. No doubt his pain grieved her almost as much as it grieved Job. 
maybe even more. What wife would not suffer along with her husband whom she loves? Sometimes it is harder to have to stand back and do nothing than to suffer yourself. But she is totally helpless. She couldn't do anything to help him. No doubt Job and his wife had a good marriage. They loved each other and were devoted to each other. They had ten children together who grew into well-adjusted adults who feared the Lord and got along well together, for they regularly feasted together. And after this is all over, they still have a good marriage, for they have, again, ten children together. Job loved his wife. We read, for example, in chapter 31, verse 1, that Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at another woman. Job was totally devoted to his wife, and there is no reason to believe that she was not just as devoted to him as he was to her. Under those circumstances, is it any wonder that she wants him to be relieved from his suffering? Job himself thought that he would die from his illness. That's what he says later on in one of his dialogues with his three friends. Well, she doesn't want him to suffer any longer. If he's going to die anyway, why not now? Let there be an end to his suffering. The translation says, let him curse God and die. The original is difficult to translate. In reality, it is not actually telling him to curse God. She tells him to speak evil words against God or to tell God that he is worthless. She has lost the hope that God is able to help him. She took God's goodness and mercy out of the picture. Job's wife had a wrong picture of God in her mind. And for that reason, she wanted Job to take things into his own hands. And that's where she went wrong. In this way, she became an instrument in Satan's hands. She had not come to the same insight that her husband had come to, namely, that she does not deserve anything at all. And that whatever God had given Job and her was out of mere grace. The only thing that she and her husband deserve is death. And that's true of each and every one of us, brothers and sisters. Sin makes us all guilty before God. And the penalty is death. We all sin. We all deserve death. So the fact that we are alive is God's gift. And we may never scorn that gift. Even in the midst of the most difficult, even in the most dark moments of our lives. Job's wife lost sight of that. And so she wants her husband to speak evil against God for what he had done. She sees the inner struggle of her husband. All his life, this man had served the Lord God. He was truly a man of integrity. 
And she sees how he tries to make sense of it all. And now she cannot figure out how he, under these terrible circumstances, can still maintain his integrity. It's a puzzle to her. And so she gave up. What's the use of it all? Why hang on to God if that's how you end up? Why bother living? Tell God what you think about him. About abandoning you and die. Then your suffering will be over. It's hard, brothers and sisters. It's true that it's not so hard to serve God when things are going well during times of prosperity. For let's face it, you and I, we live like kings. There's never been a generation before us who are as rich as we. We have more, we have a lot more than we need, don't we? We do not have to worry about food or drink or shelter or clothing or about health care. We can live in peace and freedom. But now, let all that be taken away from you and me. You have nothing left. Your whole family is killed. How would any of us react? Would we also not become bitter and angry at a time like that? Job's wife acted wrongly. Why? Well, look at what the problem was with Job's wife. The real problem was that she lacked faith. The problem was that she could not see beyond this earth. And that is a problem that a lot of people have. And that is the problem that people have with suffering in the, in the world. They look at what is happening all over this world. They see the horrible suffering. They see the poverty all around them. They see the great suffering and bloodshed in war-torn countries. They see what happened during World War II in Auschwitz and other places where millions of Jews were killed. They look at the abuse that some people have to suffer at the hands of others. They look at the abuse man perpetrates over against man, innocent children all over the world are horribly abused every day. That's the kind of world we live in. And many people have to deal with these kinds of conditions all the days of their lives. And they are constantly in the midst of it and can't make any sense of it. And then what do they do? They blame God. They say, if there is really a God here on this earth, then he is a terribly cruel God. Why did he not do anything at all in order to prevent this from happening? If he is that powerful, why doesn't he intervene? For it seems that God does nothing. And so they want nothing to do with such a God. But do you know why they say that and what they do not want to acknowledge? They do not want to acknowledge that suffering came here on earth because of man's sin. And that God is a God of love. They don't want to admit sin, especially their own sin. 
And that is because they don't know God's commandments. And they don't know the God of the Bible. And therefore, they do not understand that God also gave a remedy for it all. He made it possible for anyone who believes to escape suffering and pain. We're sure it is true that for a little while, while on this earth, we have to endure some suffering. We all do. Because we're all going to get sick and die someday. And some people have to suffer more than others in their lives. There are some who receive one blow after the other. But what did God do? He sent his own son on this earth. And that was the greatest act of love ever shown. He sent his son to deal with suffering. For do you think that God wants this suffering on earth? He doesn't. That is why he sent his son. And if there is anyone who was ever abused and mistreated and scorned and ridiculed, it was he, the son of God. Job's suffering is somewhat similar to Christ's suffering. For as Isaiah 53 verse 3 also prophesied, men also hid their faces from him. It says there he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It's also what happened to Job. People couldn't look at him couldn't be around him. He stank. He was ugly. But don't think that Job's suffering could in reality be compared to Christ's suffering. Christ was a man who was completely without sin. For that reason, he suffered in a way we cannot even begin to imagine. Every step he took on earth, every breath he took, was an act of humiliation for him. The king of creation became a creature. The king of creation allowed himself to become weak and vulnerable. He allowed himself to be humiliated and maltreated by man. He allowed himself to be given a human body which was prone to disease and suffering and pain. And in the end, he allowed himself to be hung on a cross like a common criminal. And he was abandoned by God and by man. His suffering cannot be compared to any human suffering. Why did he allow those things to happen to him? So that we would not have to suffer as horribly as he did so that we can escape this world full of suffering and misery and live with him on a renewed earth forever and ever in eternal bliss without tears or pain. He did so, as it says in Hebrews, also so that he could sympathize with us. Beloved, Christ is now seated on high. And he sees the suffering and the pain. He also sees it when you suffer. He's not unsympathetic. On the contrary, he hates sin. And he hates the horrible consequences of sin. 
And for that reason, he wants man to call upon him. And that's exactly what Job did. We come to the third point. Oh, sure, Job lived before the birth of Christ. But it is clear from his answer that he fully expects God to save him. He does not know exactly how. Job trusts God. Job looks beyond this world to the next. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we also stand perplexed. We stand at the deathbed of someone whom we love. We do not know what to say, except mumble some scripture passages to give comfort. We can read to them from Psalm 23, for example, that God is always with us, even though we go through the valley of death. We can read to them from Romans 8, where we are told that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and we can pray. But as we do these things, we still feel so helpless. I know I do when I stand at someone's deathbed. And then we wonder how the patient receives these words. Words seem so inadequate. Are these just empty phrases? Perhaps he on his deathbed thinks, well, it's easy for you to talk. You're not lying there on your deathbed. These aren't things that are happening to you. Why don't you get some real help? That saddens us. We feel guilty by being healthy ourselves. But often we are surprised. The dying patient comforts the healthy. He gives meaning to the words of Scripture. He opens his mouth and speaks of his faith. He speaks of the fact that he is a child of God and that he puts his trust in God. He knows where he is going. He is going to be with the Lord, to be at the side of a loved one who loves the Lord who is dying. It's quite an experience. And then you see how God does his work through that person. That the Lord God has been faithful to him all his life. And he, the patient, will tell you that he or she is ready to go to be with his or her Lord and Savior. They have accepted their lot. They have peace with God and look forward to being with him. And so the dying, the afflicted, comfort the living, the healthy. For you see, that is how God works in those who belong to him, who have learned to confess him, who have learned to trust him all the days of their lives. God prepares you for moments like that. And brothers and sisters, boys and girls, God is preparing you right now in your very lives. Job was able to look back at his life and see how gracious God had been to him in spite of his many sins. And so Job says to his wife, you are talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept good from God and not trouble? Job is so thankful for the life 
that God has given him. Thankfully, Job did not listen to his wife unless she told him to speak evil about God, to curse God. He was not like Adam who listened to his wife Eve and plunged them both into sin. No, Job perseveres in his faith. And in this way, he is a great blessing to her. For we do not read anything further about his wife except that when this is all over, Job and his wife received ten more children from the Lord. God continues to bless them both. It would appear that Job's wife accepted his rebuke, his rebuke and she repented. How could Job be so strong? Are you afraid that when you are put to the test that you will not stand up as well as Job? Well, as I said, do not forget that God prepares you for moments like that. He's preparing you right now. He's preparing you every day of your life. Job loved his whole, Job lived his whole life out of thankfulness. He knew that everything he had was a gift from God. And every day he thanked God for those gifts. He did not think that he had a right to any of these gifts at all. Do you also believe that about your possessions, brothers and sisters? Do you also realize that? That everything you have are God's gifts? And do you give God thanks for those gifts? Do you thank him every day of your life? Do you get down on your knees before God and thank him from the bottom of your heart that he is so gracious for giving you life, for giving you eternal life? For you see, you have no right to the things you have now. You have no right to your health to your riches, to your life. It's God's gift. The fact that you have them is only because of God's grace. It is only because of God's love that you receive these things. And for that reason, you also have to give God thanks for them. If that is how you conduct your whole life out of thankfulness, then when something is taken away from you, then you do not become bitter. And then you will accept that from the Lord. For we may accept the good, but we must also be willing to accept the trouble in our lives. When calamity comes upon us, then we must realize that God does that in order to test us, to test our faith, and to bring us close to him. The Lord God teaches us to let go of the things on earth. For whether you like it or not, the time comes when you have to say goodbye to all your earthly possessions. And that may be sooner than later. Are you willing? Are you ready to let go? Oh, sure, you still want to live here on this earth, especially when you're still young and you have your whole life ahead of you. And there is nothing wrong with that. But you can only live your life to the fullest if you first of all let it all go. For your possessions may not own you. Realize that all these things come from God. And to live a life like that takes faith. 
We have to look beyond the here and the now, and we have to look towards God, to what he has for us in heaven. As Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If that is your confession now, then you will not curse God in your heart when unexpectedly you face trouble in your life. Job's wife had to learn that lesson. She had to learn that all good things come from God and not through any merit of our own. It is God's gift. And therefore we must accept the good as well as the bad. And then when the devil comes along, he will turn it to our good. That's what he promises. That's his promise to all those who believe, all who are willing to receive the good and the bad. Amen.